Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rachel Pagonis. Today, I'm speaking with Susan Reverby about her new book, Co-Conspirator for Justice, The Revolutionary Life of Dr. Alan Berkman. Susan Reverby is the Marion Butler McLean Professor Emerita in the History of Ideas and Professor Emerita of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. She is a historian of American healthcare, women, race, and public health with a focus on equality and ethics. Susan has researched and written extensively on the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study in two books and numerous articles. In that study, run by the U.S. Public Health Service for 40 years, African-American men were deceived into believing they were being treated rather than merely followed till their disease ran its course. Susan was part of the legacy committee that resulted in President Clinton's federal apology for the study in 1997. In 2010, Her article on a U.S. study in Guatemala in the late 1940s that involved infecting men and women with sexually transmitted diseases led to an apology to the Guatemalans by the Obama administration. Her most recent research into healthcare and matters of ethics and morality resulted in her new book, Co-Conspirator for Justice, a biography of Dr. Alan Berkman, an extraordinary doctor, researcher, global health physician, public health activist, and one-time political revolutionary. Susan Reverby, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. Susan, we often begin by asking about your own background before getting into what compelled you to write your book. In this case, the two are uniquely intertwined, I believe. Professionally, you've long been involved with matters of health justice, but you also have a personal connection to Alan Berkman that goes way back. Is that right? That's right. I actually went to his bar mitzvah. So um, I, Alan and I, Alan Berkman and I grew up in this little town called, literally called Middletown, um, halfway between uh, Mount Hope and Goshen in upstate New York when going to New York City, which was 70 miles away, was still a two-hour trip on the back roads. And um, it was a small town. We grew up in the late 40s and into the 50s and early 60s. We graduated from high school in the early 60s. And Alan, so I knew Alan, I think, from junior high on. And, uh, you know, he was the smart boy. As one of the, my high school classmates said, we were all smart, but Alan was really, really smart. I mean, he was the guy who won both the typing awards, you know, was the best driver. And then, which I'll never forgive him for, won the history award when we graduated from high school. So we ended up at Cornell together in the early 60s, and we had completely divergent paths. That is, he became, he played football, he was president of his fraternity, and he was a pre-med on his way to a you know spectacular career in uh, medicine. And I was majoring in labor history. I became political. I almost got thrown out of college for organizing draft card burning my senior year. And I thought I was going on to make the revolution. And Alan was going to medical school. And then somewhere along the line, um, those paths diverged. So Alan, who had not been particularly political 
in college became very politicized during um, medical school. And we were both in New York. And I had what I used to tell my students long before I thought about writing this book, um, what I think of as a kind of quintessential 60s or 70s, early 70s uh, conversation that often happened in the circles I traveled in. So he came to see me one day. We were friends. Um, and he said, Bobby Seale, the, then the head of the Panthers, was on trial, unjustly accused of, being a, of having done a murder in New Haven along with uh, Erica Huggins. So Alan was with a group and he asked me if Bobby Seale was convicted, was I willing to take up arms? And I remember looking at him and thinking, what the hell happened (laughs) to you? I can't believe we're having this conversation. And then I said, no, I'm not. Partly because, you know, I think I was just thought it was nuts. Um, Even though I actually knew how to use a rifle because I'd taken riflery in college and gone hunting with high school boyfriends. But Um, also because I'm a labor historian originally by training and I knew we always got shot. So I just thought I'm willing to take up arms if I thought I was with Castro in Cuba, but I wasn't certainly willing to take up arms in the United States in 1970. It seemed really crazy. And then we just diverged and his life went on very differently than mine. So that's how I knew him and that's how our lives sort of came together. But I knew him really as a boy and then as an adolescent, a little bit in college. And then I saw him a couple of times in New York and then I left New York and then we didn't see each other again for another 25 or 30 years. And I saw him once or twice before he died in 2009. So I knew him as a boy and a, and a teenager, really. And his life at times was very much in the news. Did you follow his uh, adventures, let's say, his activities closely? Yeah, I I did a little bit because my mother still lived in little, my parents still lived in the little town that we grew up in. So I would get clippings from the local newspaper whenever he would make the papers. But by then I had moved to Boston. So I really wasn't cognizant of it. And then I'll go into details about this in a minute. When he was in prison, um, I thought about writing to him and I just, couldn't remember, couldn't think about what to tell him because by then I'd been hired at Wellesley. And I thought, how do I write to him and say, I'm teaching at this bourgeois women's, you know, college, elite women's college, although our students aren't all elite. Um, But I'm teaching at this traditionally elite women's college and you're in prison. Uh, And how did that happen? And what do I say to you? You know, I just didn't know what to say to him. Um, So I didn't write, but on our 25th, reunion for Cornell, I thought about writing a little something about what had happened to him. So that's sort of when I started to really think about his um, life. So that would have been 1992. And then I met him briefly when he came out of prison in 94. And we sort of saw each other, I think, one more time, but I never really knew him as a as a grown up. And what made you, because it's been quite some time, actually, even since his death, and uh, all of the things that he'd accomplished after he was out of prison. What made you decide to finally write this book? So what happened, it's actually one of these weird things. So I, you know, I, as your introduction said, I had found all this material in Guatemala and for like a, a nanosecond in media time, so probably two weeks, I was like on every radio show and television network all over the world to describe what happened in Guatemala. And 
people sort of expected me to go on and do more work on the Guatemala uh, project, but uh, my Spanish is pretty bad. And I had spent at that point almost two decades working on Tuskegee, on the syphilis study in Tuskegee. And I think I just wanted to be cured of historic syphilis at that point. And I also knew I didn't know enough labor history. I mean, uh, Latin American history to do the work in Guatemala. So I was fishing around for another project. And then I got this amazing honor, which was I was asked to give what's called the Garrison Lecture, which is the major lecture in my field in the American Association for the History of Medicine. And it's supposed to be on new work. And it's supposed to be some big topic, right? And I um, didn't have anything. I absolutely had nothing in my file cabinet. I had no ideas about what I was going to do. I just finished the Tuskegee work. I had finished the Guatemala work, and I just had no idea. So I had to sort of figure out what else I could give this lecture about and what else I might write about next. And the conference was going to be at Johns Hopkins. And one of the things that's at Johns Hopkins, which is one of our most famous medical schools, and has a famous painting there called The Great Doctors. And it's a picture of the major white physicians who helped found um, Hopkins. And years ago, a colleague and I had written an essay that we're pretty famous for called Beyond the Great Doctors, which was an argument for why history of medicine should be more than the ideas and, and activities of great physicians. So I thought, wow, I'm going to Hopkins. Nobody expects me to talk about great white doctors. This would be like completely unimaginable. That's what I should do. So who should I write about? You know, I just thought, why don't I do something completely bizarro? Um, so I ended up writing this paper that was called Enemy of the People, Enemy of the State, Two Greatly Infamous Doctors in the Court of History. And the argument I was making in the talk and then eventually the article was, what is the responsibility of a historian when you tell the story of people who have awful things that hap- that they did or happened to them? And how do you do that? And how do you become the judge and the jury and the defense attorney, but also the prosecuting attorney and how you do it? So I did, the one physician I did who I called enemy of the people was um, John Cutler, the man who had run the study in Guatemala and never apologized either for that or the work he also did in Tuskegee. And then I needed an opposite case. And then I remembered I'd done all this work on Allen, you know, for our high school, I mean, for our college reunion book. And I thought, wow, I wonder if there's any materials. So I knew he had died and I called his widow up who I actually had never met, but she knew who I was, that I had been a friend of his in high school and college. And I said, can I come talk to you? And she said, sure. And I went to New York and I spent a whole day in their apartment. And at the end of the day, she walked me into the other room and she said, well, this is what there is. And there were boxes and boxes of material um, and an unpublished memoir of his time in prison. And I thought, oh, well, wow, there's enough stuff. So I spent the next six months in there with my scanner. (laughs) I copied absolutely every piece of paper that was in that back room. And then I started to write this lecture. And I never thought it would be more than that, because part of Alan's story is he becomes close to people who are involved um, in something called the Black Liberation Army. And then he was, the state went after him after a, there was a robbery or an expropriation, as they called it, of a Brinks truck um, done by the Black Liberation Army people, along with numbers of people from the political group Allen was part of. He was not there. 
but other his friends and comrades did it. And it involved a shootout in the end in which two policemen and a Brinks guard were killed. And one of the women in the getaway car accidentally shot herself and was bleeding out. And so Alan got called to take care of her. And it's a pretty minor misdemeanor to not report a uh, gunshot wound in New York State. But needless to say, he did not report that he saved her life. And the uh, federal government went after him as accessory to murder. After the fact, he became only the second doctor in U.S. history to be charged in this way. The first one was uh, Samuel Mudd, who treated John Wilkes Booth after the Lincoln assassination. So Allen refuses to give testimony at the uh, and he's in jail in New York for seven months, and they're about to reindict him again. And he realizes, as do several of his comrades, that they're they're going to go to jail for a really long time, that there's no way they're going to get a, a real trial. And at this point, really, that's all he had done. He treated someone who and didn't wouldn't tell the police about her and where she was. So he goes underground. He makes a decision that if he really wants to be a revolutionary, he has to go underground. So he goes underground with other people in his group. And they begin to do bombings. They do non-lethal bombings. They bombed a FBI office, the Navy Yard, the U.S. Senate. This is all during the Reagan administration um, in the mid-'80s. And they do this for two and a half years, and then eventually everybody gets caught, including Allen. And they get sent, there's trials, and he gets sent um, to prison. And while he's in prison, he uh, gets Hodgkin's lymphoma and is very, very sick. He gets it twice, and he almost dies. And Had he not been a physician and realized what was happening to him at one point, he, he definitely would have died in prison. Um, but he eventually survives and gets out. So, And that's sort of the beginning part of his story. And then when he got out, he had to figure out what he was going to do next. And he becomes an AIDS doctor um, in New York, and then he becomes uh, he gets a job at Columbia through friends of his who um, hire him and realize that he's just as brilliant as we all knew he was in high school and that he could be taught how to become a really good researcher and a political figure around HIV AIDS. And that's what he does for the rest of his life. And I find it really interesting, the connection to medicine that was absolutely intertwined with everything he did. Now, Alan Berkman was dedicated to revolutionary political change and to medicine throughout his life. But as you said, it wasn't really until medical school that he became involved in revolutionary politics in any way. Although he did speak of being deeply influenced by Stokely Carmichael after hearing him speak while in his senior year at Cornell. Right. Um, he talks about that as that sort of major moment when when Carmichael basically said, what side are you on? And he has to start to figure that out. So I think by the end of his senior year, he's primed to start really considering this. But I also think one of the things, because it's just, you know, how when people tell one story over and over again, it's usually meaningful for them. So one of the stories that he would tell over and over again is about a patient. And sometimes the story was about a woman or sometimes it was about a man, but the person had congestive heart failure. And Alan figured out brilliantly what, what this person needed to stay alive, what kind of drugs they needed, and how to take care of them. And then they sent them home to walk up five flights of stairs in a poor neighborhood in New York. And he realized, I think, at that point that no matter how brilliant his diagnosis or his understanding of what drugs were needed to help someone or procedures, that he couldn't save her. And he couldn't save her because of the political economy of how she lived and of the structural racism that affected her life. 
And I think that's when his medicine and revolutionary moments come together. We, there's a term we use a lot when we're teaching about how to think about medicine that's called focusing upstream. And I think he's a good example that that is you're a healthcare worker or professional and you're standing by a body of water and these bodies keep floating down and you pull the bodies out of the water one by one. And then you realize that maybe you ought to focus upstream to figure out why they're falling into the water in the first place. So I think he's a good example of someone who just thought, I have to focus upstream. I have to figure out why these bodies, why we have these disparities, what's happening to these people, and what can I do about it? And all my doctor skills need to focus upstream as well. Well, That's quite a stunning metaphor. I'd never heard that explained before. Uh Um, (laughs) You haven't been uh, in my class. (laughs) No, I need to take your class. But certainly this was a time at which people were beginning to talk about, in all kinds of realms, psychotherapy, um, medical schools as well, they were beginning to talk about healthcare. Well, health is something that couldn't be separated from uh, the social background, the economic background, uh, particularly uh, socioeconomic or sociopolitical background. And as people were studying Marx and looking at revolutions that were happening in other countries. Uh, is my understanding. Is that right? That That is right. Although obviously there is a long history of um, what you might call the social, um, pr- I mean, that's one of the things that my friend and I wrote about when we wrote about um, going beyond the great doctor's ideas, that there is this whole history of a kind of social history of medicine of people who really thought about di- what we now call health disparities, what we used to call health inequalities, which I thought was a much better term because disparities makes it sound like there's something wrong with you personally, you know, you're disparate, but inequalities has a much more structural um, word to it. And I actually, one of these days, I'd like to write an essay on when we stopped using inequality and started using disparity <laughs> as a terminology. Mm-hmm. But in any event, um, that was very much part of the discussion. There was, um, Alan was in medical school when there was an organization called the Student Health Organization, which was organized by, you know, people who had been lefty SDS, Students for Democratic Society members in, in college. Um, one of his buddies in medical school um, taught a whole course on sort of looking at, you know, the political economy of tropical medicine, for example, which was the term for what we now call global health. But in any event, he was being politicized around all of those issues at the same time. He was reading Marx, um, you know, and he was just, and then he just fell in with these other people. And I think, you know, he was, had a lot of leadership skills. He was super smart. Um, A lot of us think he just had a photographic memory. And so he just, you know, he just had a lot of time. He could put things together. He had a you know, a really good political sensibility and an ability to imagine what short-term and long-term struggles might look like. He could draw the big picture, but he also could figure out what the steps were to get there. On the other hand, as I wrote in the book, he was very good at being a revolutionary um, at one point, but not very good at leading a revolution. That is, I think they got so caught up in their own small group and their rhetoric and their concerns that they didn't notice that nobody was behind them. It's a little hard to have a revolution if you're the only ones. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so one thing I'm still wondering about is it, certainly it seems that Alan's dedication to medical justice or healthcare justice was deepened by his experience as a cancer patient under really horrendous conditions while imprisoned in the prison system. Do you think it was primarily his interest in medicine that drove his revolutionary politics or 
was medicine just the prism through which his life was was bent, as it were? It could as easily have been law or something else that he was good at. No, I think the medicine really mattered. I mean, I think it really mattered him partly because I think the science, I mean, at one point he was on his way to being, um, you know, a super scientist. I mean, I think one of the things is that he realized early that he was super smart. And so the question is, what was he going to do with that? You know, what was he, I mean, as he said, he wrote once, I had his high school girlfriend's letters, she kept them. So I wrote about what he was thinking in, in high school and college when he was still writing to her. And, you know, at one point he said, I don't think I could be a bad doctor if I tried. The real question is, what can I do? So I think he was aware of his own brilliance and trying to figure out what to do with it. And I think medicine, um, because of the way in which it combines both art and science, really appealed to him. And I think there was a deep compassion for others that was part and parcel of sort of who he was as a person. So, I mean, his brother became a fancy dancy right wingish uh, real estate lawyer. So, you know, there are other, the brother, the law part was already taken in the family as it were. He's the second son of four children. Um, and he came from a very tough kind of working class Jewish family. There's a, I start the book with a story about a grandfather who supposedly killed an anti-Semite somewhere in, you know, Poland and then had to flee to the United States. So, and his family were, his grandfather was a junk dealer in New York and had to fight the mob. And so you have this sense of a kind of, and his parents ran a uh, sort of plumbing supply company. So they weren't, I mean, my parents were, my father was a physician and we were much more middle-class. Alan's family was became middle class, but they came from a much deeper working class, you know, situation than mine did. And so I think that's part of it. He had a kind of physicality and toughness about him as well. Um, But I think the caring was central to his, to his core. Yes. And that brings up something else that struck me as you frequently in the book describe Alan Berkman in terms of his masculinity. Although you also touch on how he was constantly working to be more sensitive to women and to the feminism that surrounded him. Uh, you described him to me as an alpha male. I was wondering, do you think his strong masculinity made it easier for him to fit into the still patriarchal medical hierarchy? Uh, and, and I wonder if that even allowed him to sort of to fit back into that, even after a decade in prison, where he was then able to influence the patriarchal system from within to become sort of more humane. Um, Right. And I also think part of it was, I mean, I was struck when I did these interviews at Columbia with a lot of the men who were friends, were his friends at Columbia. And a a lot of them just kept saying he was, he was such a good friend. He really listened well. And I think part of what happened is every, you know, people didn't know all the details of his history, of his political history and background, but they knew some of it. They knew he'd been in prison and for his political ideas. And I think there, and also that he could have gotten out. I mean, so one of the stories is the FBI kept coming to him and saying, while he was in prison, before he went to prison, if you basically rat out your comrades, we'll put you in, you know, witness protection, you can have a nice life. And um, even when, you know, he was on death's door, they were making those kinds of offers and he never did it. So I think there was a way in which he exuded a certain kind of both compassion and toughness, which is a rarity to see both, I think, in men in particular. And many of these men just confided in him in a way, I think they wouldn't, other people, their own fears, their concerns. And because he always had good ideas or he listened compassionately to what their worries were. And I think it made it easier for him to fit. And and the other line that I love is one of my favorite lines about him was 
the people who worked with him the best at Columbia and who brought him to Columbia um, had been themselves, uh, their family had been revolutionaries and involved with the the ANC, the African National Congress in South Africa, had to leave South Africa in the, in the 50s because they would have been arrested. And they end up at Columbia. And so their son, who's also very political, is the one who hires Alan. And as he said at Alan's memorial, when we tried to hire him at Columbia, it was a little difficult, right? I mean, he has a 10-year gap in his resume. He never, he dropped out of his he went through his internship, but he never went into a residency program. He never published anything before, you know, until he got to Columbia, but he had never published anything except I would argue he wrote pamphlets and leaflets, right? So it's a little hard to give someone a, a fancy appointment in a medical school with that kind of bizarro background, right? But then this gentleman said, but then we got to South Africa to do work in South Africa. And Alan had the perfect resume because he'd been a political prisoner of the United States. And people understood that and what it meant to be a political prisoner and to put your life on the line. And they totally trusted him. So Whereas I just thought this, okay, yeah, he, here he was a political prisoner in a country that refuses to admit that we have political prisoners. Exactly. And in South Africa, he had the great resume. Right? So it's a great story about, you know, what made it possible. And also, you know, I mean, what's fascinating, here's this, you know, sort of super masculine guy, but he also, um, you know, he's in a political organization at that point when he was, before he goes to prison called the May 19th communist organization, which had sort of fall had come out of SDS and then into weather and then into something called Prairie Fire, but he, which was run mostly by lesbians. So he had learned how, I mean, he had been rectified as the term was used in the time. That is that you had to sort of speak about your own failings. You had to be forgiven um, and seek apology, you know, apologize for your brusqueness and your control. And he really struggled with it, as one of his best friends said. He struggled with it his whole life. And and I thought this was really interesting because when I started to write about this, people kept talking about him at Columbia about this sort of saintly person. I mean, part of it was all the cancer experiences. I mean, he had six or seven cancers before he died, but. I kept thinking, this is not the guy I remembered. And I had to call up two of my high school girlfriends and say, do you remember what he was like in high school? I mean, wasn't he like sort of arrogant and difficult? And they said, oh, yes. So, you know, it's just completely fascinating to me what happened to him, I think, in part in prison, in part through medicine, in part through the politics, and of course, through all those experiences of nearly dying. And I think what he carried with him into medicine both before he went to prison, but certainly afterward, was this just incredible righteous anger that people hadn't been treated equally, that they weren't being treated fairly, that you could almost argue that prison medicine was an oxymoron. For example, when he gets to this prison um, called Marion, which is one of our high-tech real lockdown prisons, the only physician in the entire uh, prison who had a license was Alan. The guy who was supposed to be treating him had gone to medical school, but never passed any of the licensing laws um, boards. So he didn't know what to do. I mean, Alan had explained to him what the tests were he needed and how to treat him when he had cancer. I mean, it's just horrendous. I found that absolutely shocking because I had no idea that there were doctors practicing in prisons who did not have medical licenses. And it seemed like that was the norm. Do you know, is that still the case? No, it's gotten much, I mean, this was in the eighties, so it's gotten better 
And, um, you know, and there's some really decent people, including, you know, one of the guys who treated Alan toward the end of his life was uh, for a long time the head of medicine at Rutgers, one of the uh, Rutgers, at Rikers, one of the biggest um, prisons in New York City. Um, so there's an attempt to really change it. There's been an attempt to kind of more professionalize prison medicine. But in some ways, as I said, prison medicine is uh, in and of itself a kind of oxymoron because you're setting medicine up in a context in which physicians are told, I mean, Alan had worked as a prison doc briefly before he became a prisoner. And he was essentially told, don't trust them. They're lying. And if you go in to see a, a, a prisoner, assuming that they're not telling you the truth and you're part and parcel of a control system, it's really hard to practice medicine in any way that's decent. And so that's always a struggle um, in there. I mean, I just had a phone conversation earlier today with someone who does work on pr prison issues, and she said that they're finding that the prisons are trying to um, encourage people to get um, flu shots. And so they're paying them. They're putting money into their, into their, uh, you know, their canteens, essentially, if they get a flu shot. And a lot of people are refusing them because they don't trust them. And that's where the contradiction happens, since obviously it's one thing when we don't know much about the new COVID vaccines as they come along, but flu shots are pretty safe, are really, really safe. And so you can understand that people are so terrified of what medicine looks like in prison that they won't even take something that would help them. And he saw that. Wow, that's stunning. And it was really wrenching reading about what happened to him in prison, not just as a prisoner, but particularly being a cancer patient in prison because he. He was on death's door, as you say, several times. And when I was reading about his time in the May 19th communist organization and the political activities, that was really kind of heart stopping, too, because I kept wanting to say, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> and it was the same thing in the prison. I wanted to say, oh, please don't make this. Not It wasn't his decision. Now yeah. it was right. the prison officials, the prison system you know, where he would be sent, and then the doctors themselves. And I just want to say, oh, please don't do that. I know. I, I had, you can imagine what it was. I think I said this in the, uh, you know, at the end of the book when I wrote the acknowledgement, this was the, I mean, I've written a number of books. This was the hardest because um, I had the same absolute, I'm glad you had that reaction because I was hoping you would um, as a reader because I had it as a writer, you know, because I knew what was going to happen. I mean, not obviously in details till I you know, did the research, but I just kept saying, don't, don't do that. Oh, don't go through that door. You know, you just want to go, oh no, please don't do this, <laughs> you know, all the, all the time. And the story, I mean, the one story that's the most powerful, of course, in the, in the prison is he's being, he's on these heavy chemo drugs and he's getting paralyzed and he realizes that he's in septic shock from it and that he's going to die if somebody doesn't come in quickly and he can't move and he's yelling and screaming and no one's coming in the door and no one's coming to help him. He's in a prison hospital. And he finally remembers because he's a physician that if he moves his neck, which is about the only thing he can move at this point and leans over and cuts off the IV line, it will set off an alarm at the nursing station and that they might come in if they hear the alarm. So he pulls the line over with his neck and he cuts the line with his chin. And then the alarm goes off and the nurse comes in and he says, I'm in septic shock. I need to, see, you need to bring somebody here immediately, take care of me. And she, the nurse says, well, and he says, and I've been yelling. And she, she says, well, you yell all the time. We don't listen to you. So if he had not known that, you know, he would have been dead. 
Yeah, as you say, <laughs> if he wasn't a physician himself, right, he never would have survived. No, it, no. It and it strikes me. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, this is, he got, at one point he gets interviewed by 60 Minutes. It's a wonderful um, interview with 60 Minutes. And Scott Pelley from 60 Minutes says to him, what would have happened to you if you hadn't been a doctor? And Alan says, I would have been dead. Hmm. It's as dark as that. And so that, I think, fueled everything he did afterward. And he had this amazing just sense that he had a responsibility to use his brilliance and his medical skills um, to help to be a righteous doctor, to be to do it right. And so one of the things that happens to him later on is because of this work in South Africa, he's in South Africa in 1998 as the epidemic, the AIDS epidemic is exploding um, across um, South Africa at a point at which Mbeki, then the president of South Africa, is denying that HIV causes um, uh, causes AIDS. So there's all this denialism going on in South Africa. The disease is exploding and the U.S. is keeping many countries in the global South from bringing in the expensive antiretroviral drugs because they're not letting them break patent to create um, generics. So Alan and Barbara, his wife, are both there. And then they go to Geneva um, for the World AIDS Conference in 1998. And it's called Bridging the Gap is the name of the conference. But in fact, bridging the gap between the global south and the global north is not happening. And right after that, they go to, um, they, they're traveling through Europe and they go to um, Auschwitz to do a tour. And so it makes Alan think a lot about, um, you know, what happened to the Jews, what happens when you don't stop something terrible from happening. So between that and the experience of the denialism and the problem with the drugs in South Africa, he comes back to New York and he calls some old political buddies of his and he says, we have to do something about this. And over the next two years, they organize um, an organization called, um, that becomes uh, known as Health Gap, the Health, Health Global Access Project. And they make connections with people who understand how um, intellectual property law works and how the drug companies are operating. They start doing demonstrations just as Al Gore is running for um, president in 2000 and um, start questioning his role in keeping these antiretrovirals from getting into South Africa because he's the point person for this for the Clinton administration in the late 1990s. And then they help organize along with a group called TAC, the Treatment Action Campaign in South Africa, a giant demonstration in Durban in South Africa in 2000 when the World Health, World's AIDS Conference is in Durban. Um, and then this organization builds with international people. This is the beginning of the internet being really widely available. And so they're able to coordinate with people around the world. And Health Gap, which still exists now, still does all of this work worldwide to make sure that drugs get into the global south um, at the cheapest price possible. And Alan really always thought that what he did for help to start Health Gap was the most important thing he did in his life. So here's a man who goes to prison for refusing to tell on his comrades and for refusing to tell on someone whose life he saved, um, who did non-lethal bombings, but in the end probably saved millions of people's lives. And one thing that comes out of that for me is that some of his comrades who went to prison got out after, well, several years, but not a lifetime or half a lifetime. But others spent almost the rest of their life in prison. Uh, in one case, 
and I can't remember which one it was, but she died of ovarian cancer just a few That's, days yeah, after. Yeah, it was Marilyn Buck, and he, she's right. the woman Alan saved. She's right. the one who did not die from, from the gunshot wound. Yes. Right. She what got out tragedy. two weeks. Yeah, two weeks before she died, they let her out on compassionate release, and she died two weeks later. Yeah, but some of the people who did get out also went on to have rather stellar careers, often in academia, but also very much involved in justice and working for people who we Absolutely. now call underserved. Right. And what a terrible waste it is to have someone in prison for that long without the possibility of being able to, I don't know if reinvent is the right word, but go back into their life and use the talents that they had and evolve the way a human being does evolve if given the freedom to do so. That's right. So one of the people who was Alan's closest friend, a woman named Laura Whitehorn, for example, is one of the major people in a group called RAP, uh, which stands for Release Our Aging People in Prison. And they've been struggling in New York State in particular to get um, prisoners who are in their 70s and 80s, you know, who are no longer going to be, a, you know, a, at risk to do anything um, other than just live out the rest of their lives outside the walls of prison. And so, um, and one of the people who was involved in the Brinks robbery, who never shot anybody, who was just driving one of the getaway cars, it's a man named David Gilbert. And David's been in prison since 1981. Um, and there's a movement afoot to try and get him. He's now 75 or 76, um, to get him out. I mean, it's just at some point where does justice, how do we get to justice, um, in all of these cases? And, you know, um, what it really is important to think about what it does it mean to warehouse people forever, even for crimes we might find horrendous people do change. Um, they evolve, um, and I think the other way to think about it for a lot of the people um, who were like, who were in the Black Liberation Army men, um, in particular, uh, one of them, I thought this was great in an interview, wasn't with me, but with somebody else, someone said, well, why were you doing this? And he said, well, we were at war. And the person asking him the question said, what war? And I think given, you know, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the sense of the 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 killings that go on, the judicial killings that go on in the streets um, that we allow to happen. I have, you have to think back to the 60s and 70s when that was going on as well, and that they saw the same thing. And so they thought of themselves as a war, as one of Alan's comrades said to me, we were tired of seeing all the bodies just on one side. So, you know, I think it's hard, it's a little hard to capture that, although I think the Black Lives Matter movement helps people think a little bit about what the anger was about, you know, and the uh, Concern. And so it raises again for us, I think, in this time period. So is the answer going into an, to the underground and bombing, um, you know, political sites? I would argue no, because it didn't do any good then either. Um, does it mean taking up arms? Um, no, I don't. I personally don't think so. But other people clearly do. There are some people in the Antifa groups who do think that you at least have to have defensive weapons. Um, as they did in Charlottesville, um, or not, or does it allow, um, you know, a more right-wing government like the Trump administration to make arguments that somehow Antifa is this enormously well-organized group that's going to come shoot all the white people, especially white women who live in the suburbs, right? I mean, it's just nuts. Um, you know, and that kind of stuff. I mean, like, it was very interesting. I, my family has a house on Cape Cod, and during the summer, we had a Black Lives Matter, uh, March and I, somebody put on the community page for this little town that there was a sign about um, 
you that the spot that the um, march was being sponsored by Antifa Indiana, and here was their phone number. And I just fell out laughing as if you could call a telephone number in Indiana, and they would answer the phone and go, "Hi, it's Antifa." <laughs> <laughs> it was so nuts. So I wrote back and I said, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, they don't have a phone number. And why would it, an organization in Indiana care about this little town with 3,000 people in it, right? Whether we're having a Black Lives Matter march. But it goes to show the kind of lunacy and paranoia that's out there. So, it, you know, I think Alan's life is an interesting story about here. here's this really brilliant guy? How does he come to think that this is the answer? And you can understand why he got there, but then you can also see the limitations. And he does too. While he's in prison, he writes these, I mean, the reason I was able to write the book is he he got back from his friends a lot of the letters that he wrote. So I had hundreds of letters. And they really go to his state of mind at that moment in time, which is as a historian, of course, what you want is what happened at that moment, not what somebody remembers 20 years later, they thought then. It's very useful to have it. And so in one, with one of his friends, he's writing, and the friend says, I think you have an I and we problem. That is, you can't figure out what you think and what you think the collective should be doing. And you sometimes listen to the pressure of the collective. And so I thought it was fascinating that he tried to work out well, here's my own personal political judgment, but then the group thinks this, what's my responsibility to the group? What's my responsibility to my own thinking? And how do I balance that? And I think we all make those kind of decisions, obviously, presumably not about shooting and bombing, but we do think about those things all the time. So I thought that was very meaningful and that his life gave us some insight into how someone had processed that kind of issue. Yes. And it strikes me that Another we would be uh, the medical establishment. And Alan, going through medical school, you're really indoctrinated with the conventional medical thinking or the medical care system. And I think another theme that runs through the book is how there's a balance between how medicine or doctors can help you, they can save your life, but they can also kill you. And in medical school, Alan is even involved with this publication called Iatrogenia, yeah. which I thought is a great name for a publication. Yeah. But, but you mentioned how he's he is acutely aware at different times of how medicine could help you or hurt you. And in fact, upon his death, you know, right after his death, you say the autopsy showed that it was actually the treatment right. for his sixth cancer or whatever it was. They killed him. There was no more evidence of the cancer at that point, right. which I thought was yeah. really ironic. In a yeah, sense. it is ironic. I mean, that the second stem cell operation, just his body couldn't take it. And that's why he died. But I also think one of the things when it, I think that one of the things that happens when you're in medicine is that you have to also come to terms with death. Um, and you have to think about it because not only are you going to try to save people, but also every doctor kills somebody, at least one. Um, person, if not more, you make mistakes, um, or you think the drugs are okay. I mean, the story, I mean, I think about this a lot, as I said, my, uh, my dad was a physician, but my brother, um, has severe hearing loss. And the reason my brother has severe hearing loss is that my father who came of age during penicillin really believed in antibiotics. And so he gave my brother who had hearing, sometimes had earaches, um, too much chloromycetin, which was a, a, uh, antibiotic that ended up overnight causing hearing loss. And so my brother's hearing loss came from my father trying to save his, you know, his son from having earaches, gave him hearing loss as a teenager. 
So I'm, you know, I'm acutely aware as a doctor's daughter about the mistakes that can happen and their consequences for people for the rest of their lives. Um, and as a medical historian, of course, I have to think about this too. So I think Alan really thought about that a lot. And he, you know, like most physicians are just closer to thinking about death than most of us are. It just comes with the turf. Yes. And we talk about the war on cancer or the war on drugs and make tremendous efforts to, to combat it. And, and there are casualties along the way. So. That's right. Right. Um, I mean, I, I wrote about that a lot when I talked about the problems with um, the syphilis studies that I wrote about because the the physician, the other physician I wrote about in this paper before I wrote out the book about Alan, um, says in an interview, we were in a war against syphilis, he said, and in a war, soldiers die. And so lots of times what I explain to people is if we use the war metaphor, it means somebody's the general. So when Eisenhower decides to stage D-Day, he knows he's sending you know, thousands of men to their death, but he knows that it's for a bigger cause. And so if you talk about um, syphilis or cancer or drugs as a war on it, then someone has to be the general. Someone has to direct the war, right? And sometimes they think they have the right to make people die. Yes. Uh, and another thing that this book was actually, perhaps surprisingly, it was a real love story. And <laughs> a love story between Alan and Barbara for sure, yeah. their love had a lot of roller coasters. Yeah, uh, their life did. Uh, right, but but love comes up a lot also as um, they were acting out of love, even in the revolution, even in May nineteenth, which I've heard from other May nineteenth members that you know they admit that there were a lot of flaws and mistakes, uh, but there was this theme of we, we're doing this out of love. Right. And I think a lot of revolutionaries have said this. We're doing this out of love for the people. Right. So Alan had a, a love story in many ways, but but particularly with Barbara. And right. I wonder if you could describe yeah, that I know. a little bit. I, so he meets this love, wonderful, absolutely wonderful human being named Barbara Zeller when he's in medical school. And, um, you know, they had an enormous, I, at one point I wanted to call the book Barbary Allen, you know, the, the, from the, <laughs> from the uh, folk song, you know, uh, Barbary Allen, a love story, which I actually thought was sort of one of my working titles for a while. Um, but so they had this, you know, amazing, you know, they were really soulmates in lots of ways. And, you know, on the other hand, you know, he goes to prison. It looks like he might be there forever. She goes on to, you know, have a, um, a lover that she's with for a very long time um, as well. And he, at one point when she's gone off to do other political work, falls in love with another woman who's um, in their commune and has an affair with her and then rekindles that while he's in prison. And I, I always joke because she was a lawyer that, in fact, he survived prison because he needed both a lawyer and a doctor um, to survive. And so he has the support of these two amazing women who – each can do different kinds of things to help his survival um, in prison. And by the time he gets out, Barbara's with this other person. And um, so, although they have a, a daughter between them and uh, Alan's with the other woman for about a year and a half. And then there's this very romantic moment where they're meeting up after uh, on a, on New Year's Eve and they're walking in the snow in New York in the quiet and they decide they're going to try again. So, Barbara breaks up with her partner and uh, Alan breaks up with his partner and they go back together again. Um, so it's quite a, a story. And, it, you know, and as he's ending and it's actually quite, I mean, the sexism and the kind of 
bizarreness of it are quite clear in his last letters as he's about to get out of prison. And you have this moment where he, you realize he's actually quite terrified about getting out of prison because now he has to figure out what he's doing with these two women. And he knows he can't have both of them at the same time. And he just can't imagine how he's going to figure this out. Right. I thought that was really funny that that was one of his biggest concerns on getting out of prison is, what am I going to do with these two women? I know. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, it makes him very human in sort of this hilarious way. I mean, because, you know, the trouble sometimes when you write about people like who do these amazing things is they don't, they don't feel real to you. And so I thought what was wonderful about having the letters and then having the people who knew him being willing to talk to me, um, in part because Barbara paved the way. I could not have done this, frankly, if she hadn't told people it was okay to speak to me. And I, as I said to her when I first started the project, I said, look, here's the good news. I'm politically enough sympathetic to what you all did. To, so I'm not going to like attack you. But I wasn't in the group and I didn't approve of what you were doing. So I have some distance from it. And I told her, this is not an official story. You don't get to tell me. I can't say what I want to write. So I had permission, essentially. She was amazingly gracious about it. I mean, I had her read the penultimate draft and she, like, I got their wedding date wrong or if I made factual mistakes, but she never changed anything. I mean, she couldn't have, but I, but she didn't try to even change anything, any of the analysis or the writing. That was a gift. That's a real gift to a writer. Just a gift. Yes. And she was, she managed to be both politically very active and yet to remain out of the, the really dangerous revolutionary aspect of it throughout the whole time. That's right. Exactly. She just was, she skated on the edge. She did amazing. She was an amazing AIDS physician in New York. I went to her retirement party and it was just so moving. I mean, she worked with this organization that provided direct patient care for decades in New York. And um, then you know, moved into doing more primary care. And she's just this brilliant and wonderful and compassionate human being. And I feel very, that the gift that Alan gave me long after he died was that I'm now part of this friendship network, of all of these amazing people that were his friends. I became part of that world. He had yeah. extraordinarily large coterie of, of friends. Yes. That people that he kept up with when he was in prison, and he wrote letters to them because you've you've got, as you say, all these letters. Right. Uh, quite extraordinary well, I mean, th- that he remained close to that many people. Well, I think there's a line that I learned from all of them is when you go to prison, you have to figure out um, how you're going to do your time. That is, so what kind of life are you going to? This is your life. You are in prison. How are you going to build it? How are you going to manage it? And Alan was determined to not let the prison system break him which is what they were trying to do. And he wouldn't let it happen. And part of the way he did that was to keep writing to the people who had been in his life um, beforehand, including a number of these um, male friends. At one point I was going to write a chapter that I I was calling the four amigos, you know, these sort of men he was particularly close to and, you know, and, and he was part of their life. So they would write one, one, one of his friends broke up his marriage. And so there'd be these letters of advice back and forth about, well, what you should do now and how to save the marriage, how not to save the marriage. I mean, he was still their close friend and he kept that up in prison. And, and they, you know, people sent him the New York Times. He, they sent him what was going on politically so that he could comment on what was happening. He didn't want to turn into, I think in prison lingo, like, you know, someone who becomes what's like a, called a mushroom where you just sort of like, hide in the ground. And then, you know, and in the 
supermax prison he was in, some people didn't even get dressed because they were fed in their cells. So they, you know, they didn't leave. Um, so you could just, you know, like some of us staying in our pajamas all year, right? But, you know, it's sort of like you didn't have to get dressed. You didn't have to do anything. You could just watch television television in your cell endlessly and mindlessly, you know, until you went nuts. Um, and he and was determined that, not to do that. Yeah, yeah. And all of that is just terrible for a person's health, mental health, physical health. When you think of it must right. have been just, well, excruciating for anybody to be in prison, but... Uh, somebody who's focused on health and thinking about health and and to be acutely aware of what that system is doing to your health. Yeah. I think it, um, I mean, his prison, I actually was going to, at one point his, uh, prison, uh, uh, memoir is called brother doc, which was his moniker in prison. And, um, I, at one point was going to call the book that, but then I realized a, it was really his title and B, it was really more about his prison experience than it was anything else. And I didn't want the book to be only about, you know, the book isn't only about his prison life. So I didn't think it worked, you know, as a title, but it also meant that people came to respect him and asked him questions. He could help them. He could help diagnose them. He could tell them what kind of questions to demand of the healthcare um, providers such as they were in prison. And he did a lot of that. And so there was an enormous amount of respect for him um, while he was in prison because of that. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing you've written this book because the written record of Alan Berkman, there were a lot of news articles involving him and his revolutionary activities and being underground and being imprisoned. His obituary in the New York Times, they do a nice obituary, but and, and he did, of course, talk about his accomplishments after, but sort of that that you know eye-catching piece that gets built up is, oh, he was he was involved with these bombings and he was in prison. So I hope your book is now uh, the authoritative publication on record <laughs> telling what sort of person, because the, you end it with uh, talking about the full, the full human that he became. Right, right, right. Exactly. It was a great line um, from um, Jennifer Dorn, who was a friend of his and Barbara's, who is a midwife and a nursing mid- nurse midwife and teaches at Columbia. And she had this great line that caught my ear when I interviewed her. And she said, when they were working in South Africa, he had become his full self. And I just thought that was just a wonderful term because he, it meant he could help provide, you know, care, but he also had become an epidemiologist really had helped teach another whole generation of global health, um, people how to, how to do research. He helped build up a new cadre of public health people and global health uh, practitioners all over the world. He worked in the Dominican Republic, in Brazil, um, in South Africa. And I think in a way, when you know you've had this much cancer and you know your time is limited um, on this earth, I think it gives a kind of passion and a, you know, a kind of push to make sure that you make the fullest use of your talents and skills every moment. And I think that's how he lived the last, you know, decade and a half of his life before he died. Yeah. And I, I would just say um, we could keep talking about this for a long time because uh, there's so much depth to the story. Uh, for anybody that would like to read the book, I highly recommend it because it's really a riveting read on top of having touching all, all of these important topics that are really pertinent today. It's also just a real page turner. 
Um, oh, thank you. I I really struggled <laughs> to, <laughs> to make that happen. Right? Just because there's nothing more boring than a what I call, used to call da 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 history. You know, oh God, <laughs> you go to sleep. <laughs> no, my heart was pounding at certain moments. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me about this book. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Um, well, Susan, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, but before we go, I'm, I'm just wondering, what are you, uh, what's occupying your time now? So I, I left teaching at Wellesley um, three years ago because I, um, I really wanted to finish this book. I mean, when someone your age dies, you have a sense about, you know, how much time is limited. And I felt like if I kept teaching for another 10 years, I'd like never get this book written. So that's part of the reasons I, I retired. But I came back out of, out of what I call repurposed, not retired. Um, to um, teach a course on the history of epidemics, which I'm now in the middle of. So I have a couple more weeks of that. And then after that, I think I'll go back to thinking about what it means to do political work, um, you know, in the context, not of a madman in the uh, White House, just a uh, mushy liberal that we're going to have to push. So that's my uh, next role, I think. I don't know if there's another book. Not sure. We'll see. Well, both of those sound very timely. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. Well, Susan Reverby, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it.